Okay, I guess I'm on. <laughs> Good to be with you. My name is Dave Harthen. Uh, I grew up here a long time ago, uh, a really long time ago. Uh, I see a few people at, uh, from those days, but not, not too many. But it's good to be here. Uh, before I jump into my message, maybe just uh, say a little bit about myself. Also to thank you. Uh, I've been a missionary for 42 and a half years now with TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission. Spent uh, a little over 20 years in Austria, most of the time in Vienna, doing church planting. I worked in three different church plants. My main job was training elders, uh, leaders for those churches. Then in 1993, we came back to the U.S. for family needs, settled in the Twin Cities area. And I have uh, since then done a variety of things done some church relations, uh, church mission conferences, and various things, but I work out of the, uh, the counseling department of TEAM. I have my master's in counseling, and I do the psychological evaluations of new applicants. I do debriefing of returning missionaries, uh, that type of thing. Anything that my, my boss needs help with. Uh, currently, I am uh, working down toward retirement. So, hopefully on June 30th next year, I turn 70, and uh, at that point, uh, the plans are to retire. Not completely from ministry, that's never done, but uh, I'm very thankful. Uh, This is my home church, and you have sent me. Uh, You have been such an important part of our ministry overseas. Uh, My wife Joanne couldn't be here today, but uh, when I introduce myself, I always have to say also, I have five kids and ten grandchildren, so uh, that's a great thing. So that's a little bit of who I am, and a thanks to to all of you who have had a part for over 42 years now of, of ministry. Let me pray for us. Lord, we now commit this time to you, this special time, as we look into your word. Thank you for your word, for uh, your communication to us. Thank you that you pursued us, that you have shown us what we need to know, and you have given us the opportunity to respond. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our minds and our hearts today to understand and also to respond. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Trusting God. In that book, he said there are three things that we must get a hold of, that we must believe about God if we're going to walk the Christian life in the way that it is meant to be lived. Uh, The first characteristic of God that we have to get a hold of, believe in, be convinced of, is the wisdom of God. And we can certainly see that in creation, but I think uh, from what Bridges was writing, he was thinking more on the personal level. 
I must be convinced that God is wise in his plan for my life. Uh, right down to, you know, the parents I was born to and uh, the place I was born and yeah, right along through our lives that God has a plan, a wise plan for each of us. The second characteristic, he says, that we need to get a hold of is God's love, to believe that God is loving. That this plan that he has laid out in his wisdom is the best. That he has the best in mind for us. Now, you might say, well, that, that makes sense. But since the Garden of Eden, uh, it's been a bit of a problem for us. You remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I know for myself, and I think for all of us, we kind of think along these lines, you know, who would know better what's good for me or what's evil for me than me? Yeah, I don't know, is there anybody out there that knows better? And God says, uh, yeah, me. Uh, I'm wiser. And my plan is loving. So those are the first two things, but that's not enough. Uh, there's a third characteristic that we have to get a hold of because the fact that he has a wise plan, the fact that it's a loving plan that is really good for us, something might come in between. That that plan can't come to fruition. So we need to believe in the sovereignty of God. That he has the authority and the power to carry out this wise and loving plan. That there is nothing, nothing, that can come between. Now, as we walk through life, the older you get, you, you see some things, and some things happen in your life and that can easily cause you to question, why, is this a wise plan? This doesn't look right to me. This doesn't seem good to me. Uh, there's some things happening here, Lord, that, you know, wow, I don't know what you're doing. Are you really in control? We need to get a hold of these three things. Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I rest my head every night. To believe that God is in control in a world that, when I look out there and I read the newspapers and look at the newscast each night, it's easy to say, well, I don't know. God, are you in control? But to know that there is a plan and that God is going to work out that plan, that is our pillow. Gives us the faith to move forward and to continue to walk with God and depend upon him. Now we're going to look at Psalm 110 today. Uh, this is a psalm that was written by David. And... As you can see, it is a psalm that deals with the sovereignty of God. 
it's as as the Bible presents him, it's almost impossible to emphasize too much the sovereignty of God. You look at the book of Revelation, for example, you know, the diadem upon diadem and just sovereignty upon sovereignty that God is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. It's not, you know, well, 60% God and 40% Satan. No, he has been given all power and all authority. This psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, uh, the first verse is quoted or alluded to 27 times in the New Testament. I want to just give one example out of Matthew 22 because Jesus quoted this psalm. I'm still in my introduction here, but uh, we'll we'll get to the psalm. Uh, In Matthew 22, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. What is the greatest commandment and all this sort of stuff? And then at the end, Jesus asks them a question. And I always figure when when Jesus... uh, or God begins to question me, I'm in trouble. Uh, I think of Job at the end of Job. Because I've uh, uh, got a few questions for you, Job. Uh, perhaps the Pharisees felt that way. But in Matthew 22, we read, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? What do, you, what do you think? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and here's the first verse of the psalm we're going to look at. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand to my, I make your enemies your footstool. Stool. If David then calls him Lord, How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. I begin to realize uh, there's something here that that we don't understand. Uh, The Pharisees, of course, were students of the Scripture, which the Scripture at the time was the Old Testament. That was the Scriptures that they had. And they knew Psalm 110, of course. And they knew that this was a messianic psalm. This was about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And of course, when this psalm was written, it was all prophecy at that point. Uh, None of this had taken place. As we're going to see, some of it has already taken place now in our day. But at that point, it was a thousand years before Christ would come. And so Jesus says... How then, a thousand years ago, how is it that David was saying to Jesus, you're my Lord? How is that? And they couldn't answer. 
So that's one example of how this psalm is used in the New Testament. Uh, verse 4 in this uh, uh, psalm that we're going to look at has to do with the priest called Melchizedek. Uh, we're going to take a look at that verse. That is kind of the foundation for six chapters of Hebrews, this verse. Uh, the difference between the priesthood of uh, the Levites of Aaron and uh, the tribe of Levi and Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, six chapters in Hebrews. So a lot of material here. I'll try not to go too long here, but... Uh, James Montgomery Boyce calls this psalm the greatest of the messianic psalms. And it is truly entirely about Jesus Christ and having a higher view of who he is. And, and that is Hebrews. You know, the, the, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better much better. Uh, looking at the sacrifices, looking at the priesthood, Jesus is better, much better than what we find in the Old Testament. Uh, this is also, as I said, a prophetic psalm. It predicts Jesus as king. And it predicts Jesus as priest. And we're going to see this is unusual when you combine the priesthood and being a king. So two revelations that we're going to look at and find as we go through this psalm. The Messiah, the son of David, is given a place at the right hand of the Father. And secondly, the Messiah, who is a king is declared also to be a priest. Okay, let's uh, take a look at these verses. First verse, I read what I read out of uh, what Jesus quoted. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. At that time, of course, this had not yet taken place. But now it has. And so our first point is here, the present reign of Christ as king. What is true right now? What is happening right now? And that is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. It would be interesting to know what, what took place as David was writing this psalm. There must have been some type of revelation because we see he's looking in and listening to a conversation that's happening in the Trinity. It's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, you'll notice when you read this, I think in most scriptures, 
you'll see two different lords. The one is all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals. One is capital L, and then O-R-D are smaller letters. So that is the first statement. The Lord said to my Lord, and then we see that David, a thousand years before Christ, was saying, my Lord, to Jesus. Uh, The first Lord is a different word, what we would say Jehovah, or the uh, Israelites would say Yahweh, uh, meaning the all-sufficient one, the self-existent one, the giver of all life, uh, the one who he needs no support from anyone else, Yahweh, Jehovah, says to my Lord, and as you can see, the second one is capital L, small o-r-d, to signify Christ or to signify the Messiah. And this word is Adoni or Adonai, one that you perhaps have heard. Uh, The meaning is the sovereign one, the supreme, all-controlling one, uh, master, owner. And certainly we see that throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, it comes up again and again that Jesus has purchased us. He is our owner. He is our master. He is the one who should be in control. And we should follow him. So that, those are the two different words here that we have for Lord. So Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. And it's actually written as a command. He says, sit at my right hand till I make enemies, your enemies, your footstool. And as we know, this is, uh, has already taken place. It took place when Jesus left earth. He had completed his work. Uh, we see it in Philippians and other places that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he was exalted to the highest place. Would have been like, would have loved to bend in heaven on that day. Can you imagine when Jesus returned home? After being 33 years here on this earth in a human body, after giving his life for us on a cross, dying rising again and coming back. And at this point, the Father issues a command, sit at my right hand. Jesus is elevated in a new way. And he's made 
the same as the Father. He's sitting on the same level as the Father, uh, where before he had, by his own choice, submitted. He is now in the place of highest honor. Uh, One can only imagine how heaven rang when the Father said, sit at my right hand. And then I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Uh, This has already taken place. He's reigning. He's in heaven. At the right hand of the Father. And he's waiting. He's waiting for his church. For his bride. Or as we're going to see as we get to verse 3, his army is being built right now. Uh, This is all taking place as he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and waiting patiently, interceding, praying that many will come, that many will say yes, to his call, but at some point his enemies will be destroyed, and we'll see that in the last section of this psalm. He uses a picture here, your enemies will be made your footstool, which is a symbol of subjugation, that he will reign, and we see here as we move into verse 2, really what we say with a rod, an iron rod. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, Many translations will put scepter here. I I think rod is probably the better translation. Uh, Scepter, I think, is often uh, a king has a scepter, and it's a symbol that he is the king, But this is a rod. This is for punishment. We read, spare the rod, spoil the child. The the rod of God will reach out in in punishment. Uh, And eventually, uh, Jesus will rule from Zion, from the heavenly throne room. He will have literally his rightful place In verse 3, we see a little bit of his army, which is now, as I said, being built. Uh, You're part of that, if you're a follower of Christ. And this is going to be exciting days uh, when we live, uh, live this out. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness... From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. His people who have followed him will volunteer in the day of power. And they will come forth not in our own power. sit here in the beauty of holiness. And the picture is here of we also are priests. 
And the robe of righteousness that we will wear is not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. We may reach into Jesus' clothes closet and put on robes of righteousness, robes of holiness that we have not earned, that we do not deserve. Uh, We don't deserve the victory that is going to take place, but it is going to take place. Uh, This is, you have the dew of your youth, a picture of how the army will cover the earth, will take over the earth. Uh, The victory will be complete. So that is the present reign of Christ. Uh, That is, and these were songs, of course, that's the first stanza. Uh, In your scriptures, some of them will have a a slight... uh, space between verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, 1 through 3 is the first stanza, verse 4 is the second stanza, and 5 through 7 is the third stanza of, of the psalm. The second stanza says more about the priestly reign of Christ. The Lord And you see here, all capital letters again. So this is Yahweh, Jehovah, saying, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn by himself because there is no higher authority. He cannot contradict himself. He cannot change his mind. He has sworn that Jesus, the Messiah, is not a priest like Aaron was. He's not a priest like the Levites were, who year after year had to sacrifice. He is after the order of Melchizedek. And I've often wondered, there's not a lot about Melchizedek. You read some in Hebrews uh, a little bit. Uh, We don't know a lot, but what we do know that he was the king of Jerusalem, and he was also a priest. And this, you just don't see. Uh, you, You couldn't combine being a priest and the king. Some of you will know the story of Saul, King Saul, who was waiting for Samuel, the priest, to come, and Samuel didn't show up, and so Saul assumed the role of priest, and God said, you're done. That's it. You can't do that. So we've got something else going on here, and... Uh, God has not, at least not revealed to me everything here, uh, but Melchizedek combined the two, being a priest and being a king. And so that's what Jesus does. So besides being a king, besides being the one who will judge, 
He is a priest. He represents sinful man before God. And first of all, he did that on the cross, right? His greatest intercession for us took place by his action on the cross as he took our place, bore our sin, died once and for all, rose again that we might have full forgiveness. So he is a priest. He blends uh, the two offices perfectly, king and priest. Uh, Because he is king, because he has power, because he is sovereign, he is able to save. I love the verse in Hebrews 7. Because he lives forever. Wow. Because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What a powerful verse, and there's so much packed in there that you know, he lives forever, therefore he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore, or because of that, he's able to save completely. Beautiful picture. So thus far we see him, he's presently reigning in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, he's interceding, and of course we know through the Holy Spirit he's working at building his army, his bride, his body, which we are part of, and waiting patiently, uh, even in the scriptures, uh, the express, it's been so long, I don't know if he's ever going to come back, I don't know if he's ever going to judge, I don't know if he's ever... He said, no, he's, he's full of mercy, and he's waiting, and he's allowing opportunity for people to come. But there will come a day, and when the wrath of God falls, it's going to be bad, and there's no more hope. He waits yet. He reigns now in heaven, and through his priestly reign, he is reconciling people to himself. But the third stanza is yet to come. Verses 5 through 7, the prophetic reign of Christ. Uh, Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. Uh, We see here there will be a glorious victory. There will be judgment. Uh, The picture is not pretty. 
and fill up the places with dead bodies, execute the heads of many countries. And then verse 7, he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up his head in victory, a symbol of victory. As I studied this, I thought, well, what would the brook be? And it's not totally clear, but some thought, you know, the brook would be actually the waters of affliction. That out of his time on the cross and his suffering and his exaltation, that's where his refreshment and his strength comes from as he wins this great victory. Uh, Philippians seems to bear that out. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So he will lift up his head in victory. So what do we do with this? I think that this proclamation that Jesus is sovereign, that God is sovereign, demands a response from us. Now, it's not too hard to respond when God is strong on our behalf and everything is going well. You know, you got a good job, you got plenty of money. Everybody in your family's well. But that doesn't you know, last forever, does it? You don't live too long before you run up against times when it's really tough. I was visiting someone yesterday in a very tough place. What do you believe about the sovereignty of God then? What does your faith look like then? When you're saying, this is not the God I thought he was. God has surprised me many times. I didn't think he would do that. I didn't think he would allow something like that. I think Job probably thought along. I mean, wait a minute. This, who is this God? I thought I knew him. And it's at times like that that we really need to get a hold of who God is and his sovereignty. You're probably familiar with uh, Hebrews 11:6, and I'll close with this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. And those who would come to him must believe two things. First one, he exists. He's real. He is God. So we've been talking about he's, he's sovereign. He has all authority. He loves. He's wise. You've got to believe that he exists. 
And the second thing, that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. In other words, you've got to believe that if I walk this road that's really hard right now, and I don't turn away to other things, but I stay true to him, some turn away to drugs, entertainment, all kinds of things so that I can just feel a little bit better as I walk this hard road. But he says, if I earnestly seek him, it's going to pay off. He is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God, a loving God, and a wise God. Lord, help us in our unbelief that we would truly believe that and it would guide our steps, especially through the dark days that come. I pray your blessing now on each one this day, in Christ's name, amen.